I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're on Team Human, folding the fringes back to the center. A celebration of the deeply weird and improbable rise of human beings in the first place, and an investigation of whether we can keep this all going in the face of increasingly automated extraction, repression, surveillance, and control. It's time to design reality on our own terms. Playing for Team Human today, a double header of people trying to affect real change in different ways. First, cultural anthropologist, host of the Two Dope Boys podcast, and consultant Philip McKenzie. Philip will be making a case for injecting corporate America with the values of social justice by subverting the machine from within. Then, founder of Front Porch Forum, Michael Wood Lewis. Michael will be showing us how the net can be used to help turn residents back into neighbors. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. There's been such a bounty of great people stepping up to share their stories. We've been conducting more than an interview each week. And meanwhile, some listeners are getting backlogged with episodes, particularly when there's so much news and change to follow elsewhere. So we're trying something new today, a double bill. Uh, Let us know how it works. I've been getting lots of requests to... uh, create some kind of team human, you know, meetup or group or some place that all the people listening to these shows and getting inspired by our various guests, where can they meet? How can they network and find each other and build something together? And I I applaud that desire, but I'm starting to wonder if it's the most important step right now. On the one hand, I feel like there are many, many groups out there who are 
doing things, whether you're involved in agriculture and permaculture, women's rights, gender rights, uh, uh, economic rights and circular economics and platform cooperatives. I mean, each of our guests is a trailhead toward finding the others. But I'm starting to wonder if that's really the best first step. Back in around 2000 or 1999, I got to appear at Richard Metzger's infamous counterculture festival. It's called DisinfoCon. And it was with real alt-culture luminaries like Joe Coleman and Robert Anton Wilson, the girls of Karen Black, Marilyn Manson, Grant Morrison, Kembra Fraler, and more. It was this crazy, boisterous, artsy, psychedelic, rebellious celebration of the weird, the occult, and it was all presented under the tagline, everything you know is wrong. And it felt like such a bounty to me, such a turning point, that I challenged all of those assembled renegades to accept their victory. I said, the counterculture has won. And what I meant was that it's time to realize that we're not the counterculture at all, that we are not against culture. George Bush was president at the time. George Bush is the counterculture. I was arguing that the ideals of the 1960s counterculture had become so mainstream that we should stop trying to run from that fact. So just as the aesthetics of the supposed counterculture were now available online or at the shopping mall, so too the values of the counterculture had become completely mainstreamed. Environmentalism, women's rights, racial justice, uh, international peace, these were all accepted values. And the other side, you know, they were looking to us for what was going to happen and how to be. You know, that we weren't the counterculture anymore. We are the pro-culture. And what I meant was that, that, that those who are resisting this sort of universal justice urge that we were all feeling, uh, uh, that they were the counterculture and we had won. And the most important part of that whole talk was that the other side can't be treated as losers anymore. We can't reject their pleas for help, their cries of fear. You know, some of them just want to know how to be cool so they can have cool businesses, but some of them wanted to genuinely understand this emerging value set. How do we get on board? And and I believe that they needed and still need to be embraced, not shunned for their previous sins. And even more important, we have to engage with the people who are afraid, the ones who are afraid of women, afraid of dark-skinned people and gender fluidity and personal autonomy, cultural intimacy, and all the other components of a more mature and integrated civilization. So like I tried to explain then, but maybe never really lived up to myself, we can't just embrace our like-minded allies. You know, it's more fun to be around people who think like us, but we have to engage with those who are being left behind or we're not really being true to our universal values at all. And today, I fear, we are suffering the consequences of having sequestered ourselves with our own cohort while simply assuming those who had different values would disappear. And 
Although our leading government, media, and cultural institutions have already incorporated our progressive, formerly countercultural values as now established truths, many people, they're still reaching back toward more primitive understandings of our world. And the amazing thing, especially in the light of controversies like the Kavanaugh hearings or the Russian election interference, is that it's the progressives who are now looking to the FBI and the judicial system for support against this rising tide of countercultural, yes, countercultural players. Sexism and racism are countercultural urges. Feminism and interracial harmony, those are mainstream. But as the establishment, and I believe that's what we truly are, we are the establishment, and it's our obligation to reach out to the other side. No matter that the counterculture occupies the White House now and enjoys a majority in pretty much every branch of government, they are still a minority. They're just more politically motivated and more politically organized. And part of what motivates them is that they've been shunned and ignored by those of us who came to dominate the cultural conversation. I first used the term find the others back at DisinfoCon in 2000, quoting counterculture hero Timothy Leary and his advice for people who get turned on to find other people who've had that same experience. And it made sense in a world in which these were fringe ideas shared only by hippies. But now that the counterculture has achieved uh, critical mass, I was then trying to update the slogan to stand for something else. Find the others, those who don't think like us, those who are now feeling as unacknowledged and angry as we did when we were a patronized fringe phenomenon. I think we were sore winners and we're paying the price, but it's not too late to turn back, find the genuine others and create common ground. We're Team Human, coming to you, alive, from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. Everything I spoke about today really relates to our first guest, cultural anthropologist and Two Dope Boys podcaster, Philip McKenzie. I was on Philip's podcast a year or so ago, and I really enjoyed speaking with him, but... When I looked at his website and the services he offers, I started to think, well, wait a minute, is this guy a marketer, a corporate consultant, or what? But Philip pretty much does embody everything I was talking about. The idea of embracing the other by going into the very belly of the beast and trying to change things from within. Phil, there's so much I want to talk about, but... So what, when I read your bio and the kind of stuff, your, your history and then the way you're presented online, it's scary to me. Is All it? Right? It's scary to me because I, maybe I had this n- a negative experience early in my career where I had written a couple of books and I wrote something called the Gen X Reader, okay. which was just an anthology of Gen X texts. And then I got called by like Discovery to do a... a talk there about how are young people at the time gen x was the young ones <laughs> how are they going to interact with you know interactive television and cable and all this kind of craziness 
Um, and I got paid. I forgot what, like you know, seventy five hundred bucks to go down there and do this thing. And the New York Times wrote this piece then saying Rushkoff makes fifteen thousand dollars an hour for selling Generation X secrets. Ah. So at that moment, I was like, I didn't even know there was an other side. At, until then, then I was like, oh, I get it. They think I'm part of the the collaborators, the people who are going to McDonald's and MTV and Nike and telling them something about young people that's going to then help them manipulate them and sell them Sprite and do do them bad. Yeah. So when I see influencer con and influencer marketing, to me, it's like, Oh no, these are the guys that are going to, you know, teach corporations how to hypnotize teenagers. Yeah. But that's not what you do, right? That is not what I do. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I, I totally understand that the inclination for people to think that, particularly right. now, right? right. When in I the say age of Cambridge Analytica yeah, and Facebook in, algorithms. In, and in this, in this current incarnation of where we are with people desperately looking for a salve to save themselves and their businesses and what they do. It's, it's easy, particularly when you don't know like kind of the history of these things, I think to, to maybe draw those types of conclusions. And I do my best to push back against that, you know? Right. So, you know, when I started influencer conference, just as an example, I started that conference partially because I was frustrated with brands and organizations I was working with primarily looking at things only in a predatory sense. Whereas, Target markets, literally. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was a, you know, I, there were things that I, was, that I was coming to realize that at the time I didn't even have a language for, but I just felt them very intrinsically that, you know, there's value in these in these spaces you know I'm, I'm a new york kid i grew up in in brooklyn and you know i came of age in the 70s and 80s you know when the city was yes admittedly incredibly more dangerous um but also incredibly more fun yeah but it was more it was more <laughs> if fun you survived, yeah. yeah if you survived then and i say and i tell folks that you know my watershed year when i graduated from high school in 1990 mm. that year was the highest was the highest number of murders in New York City ever. It was over... 90? 1990. Wow, like, I would have thought it would have been the 70s yeah, or something. 2,200 folks um, were were murdered in New York in 1990. So that's like the high-level mark. So like sociologists and, you know, criminologists will kind of use that to try to understand like what happened. Right, and that was you that know? like family murders or like, like gangs and stuff? Just murders. You know, All you right. were in New York and you didn't wake up the next morning, you were, killed you. Yeah, you, were you, were, you were in that statistic, you <laughs> yeah. know, however that came to be. Right. Then we've seen this steady decline, you know, but I came up in the before that, right. right? But the city was alive in like culture and friction and, you know, art was just everywhere, you know, and, and that's what really informed my, my world perspective. Right. So when I thought about, you know, I had different incarnations in my life career-wise, and I said, you know, what is the type of work that I want to do? It was in, you know, understanding and celebrating and rewarding these culture spaces rather than what I typically see, which is them being erased, 
you know, right. um, being forgotten, you know, being, you know, credit not going where credit should go. But you started out like you got like a business degree or yeah, something? Yeah, I'm an MBA. So I had the traditional sort of academic training right. in business. And then you went to you went to Goldman. Yeah, I worked at Goldman. And what did you do? I sat on a trading desk and managed. At a computer. At a, several computers. Right. So you're Bloomberg not shouting. Screens well, you're not moving your hands in those No, no, no. That's ways. on the floor. Okay. <laughs> so that's like, those are like floor traders. Right. So the way the exchange worked, I would send orders and instructions down to floor traders, though the business was becoming more electronic at that time right. as well. So that was another one of those friction points where you had this disintermediation between those of us on the on what we call the desk, you know, actively trading using a lot of like programming models and electronics. And, but you're making decisions. You know, oh, yeah. You're actively personally. making decisions. Yeah. Yeah. That's called making markets. Like you're sitting there, you know, pricing transactions all the time. You know, so if you now is that because you know what the company does, or because you know what the numbers mean? You know what the numbers mean. The companies so it's not like you know that oh, don't matter these guys as just, much, right? <laughs> these guys are kind of have good workers, or these ones seem more innovative in this field, or whatever. You think that when you walk in the door, right? right? So my concept of the business as a student and someone who you know read a lot of the the Wall Street right. books was that, you know, wealth manager or uh, institutional manager, someone at a big hedge fund or mutual fund yeah. would be making those kind of decisions, thinking for the long-term strategy. When right. you're a, a trader, you're not doing that. Yeah, so that's that was the frame, you know, right. to kind of walk in there. And, you know, my goal was I wanted to be successful in the, in the context of the business. Uh -huh. You know, I have a pretty traditional, maybe not that traditional immigrant story. And... You know, the way forward in my mind was to go to school, perform well academically, get a job, make money, and then provide for your for take yourself care and your of family. Your, your mom yeah, and your take dad care and, of those who took yeah. care of you and, and be a asset to those who were part of your story right. along the way. And, and then you stop liking it? Uh, yeah. You know, you sit there, like I said, in front of a multitude of screens and I just determined that this wasn't my best life's right. work, right? That I wanted to do something different. I felt that there was more that I could offer the world than to do this, you know? And right. there's an incredible disconnect, I think, between the reality of financial markets and their effect on real people's right. lives. So you left, and did your mom go, oh my God, don't do it. You're going to, this is a good job. Oh, um, 100%, of yeah. course. <laughs> like, you know, the, the money was good. I was doing well. And, and, you know, it's very difficult for people to trade certainty or seeming certainty for right. uncertainty. So then what did you, you know? do after? So I started working with a group that was a nonprofit called Parks Hall, and they were an arts advocacy organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just rough and tumble, small team. And they had this magazine called Free Magazine. And and Free was kind of this bohemian mm -hmm. ad busters type of thing, kind of published whatever came through the door yeah. that was interesting. So I can't even really say in the early phases that there was a editorial model. Right. It was just really about how do we, you know, give a voice to young writers that might not otherwise have one. Right. And, and a physical magazine. Physical magazine. Yeah. physical magazine it was small it had some elements of the vice model and that we gave it away we right put it in when we thought were cool places places that we hung out 
places where what we felt our community lived in. And people started to discover this magazine. They started picking it up. And, and so the calls started coming in. You know, how can we advertise? Like, how can we be a part of this? Like, this is really interesting. And mm-hmm. we didn't have any of that in place, like, because we didn't have ads. We didn't right. have any of that kind of stuff. And so we, we started to explore, like, you know, what are organizations that we can work with? What can we do to sort of bring our perspective, our culture, the way we look at, at things to this broader audience? Mm-hmm. And so the magazine grew in grew into like a a multicultural agency in a way, you know, we were really providing like insights and strategy to big consumer brand companies and activating events for them and and just helping them again, be better in, in culture spaces. So that was my next thing after, after Goldman. Right. And then the whole trick is always, are we, are we helping a brand be better or are we helping a brand fake better? Yeah. You know, and that's always the tricky thing. I mean, and of course you're going to advise them, no, be actually better because if you're fake better, it's only going to work for so long. Yeah. You know, so when, when, like the example I used to use was, um, it was Mountain Dew. They came up with this thing. They got Forrest Whitaker to narrate this weird 1984, like post apocalyptic landscape. And they, they were, had a campaign they called Democracy. And it was during the early Obama campaign. Okay. And democracy was that you could, as a young person, you could experience and participate in democracy by helping choose the next color of Mountain Dew. Whether yeah. you're going to do the blue, the yellow, or the red, and what the flavor is going to be. And I was just like, oh my God, do they know how stupid this is? When It was sort of American Idol-like, yeah. you know, we're going to vote for this thing. And I was thinking some crazy, really bad uh, social influence company probably came to them and, and pitched them on this. Or they did research, you know, or this is the more likely they had a company, they hired a company like yours that explained to them that people want to participate. This is a democratic demographic now and it's about participation you've got to give them opportunities to participate in civics and government and make their world better then the ad company takes that brief and goes okay let's do 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 this instead i think a lot of those type of organizations and that becomes the the challenging part Right. right that they have to decide what business they want to be in and and think about the long tail of their business right so if i'm sitting down with any company like that, you know, carbonated sugar water. It doesn't matter whether it's it's Coke or Pepsi or, or any of their affiliates, because um, working with brands within the big brands, it's unique within itself, right? right? So you can say Sprite is owned by Coke, but working on a Coke brief and working on a Sprite brief are completely different things, right? right? But the, the long tail of their business is if you look at the trending numbers in soda, they're decreasing, right? So there are no new markets to discover in those spaces, right? So the time when maybe in the 60s and 70s, they could have made the argument, well, oh, you know, markets are opening up in South America or in Africa or in wherever they they were kind of following the trend of, you know, democracy. That's no longer the case, right? you know? So what are you going to do if you're looking at a, a group of human beings that just through their their personal taste, whether that is their actual taste buds or through their taste in terms of their values are saying that they're making different choices that they don't want to drink any type of soda. Right. Right. Like, is that a, 
Is that a 10-year conversation, a 20-year conversation, a 50-year conversation? Well, it's tricky because like Indra, yeah. who ran Pepsi until she's just going to step down now, she you know, did some kind of TED Talk or World Health Organ, some big talk when she was like, oh, we're going to get, you know, Pepsi is basically delivering soda water to a diabetic obese nation. We're going to pivot off that and start doing healthy waters and this and that. Yeah. And her stock tanks like 7% mm-hmm. that day. And then people start talking about firing her. And, as- and that's the challenge. How do you, how do you do, how do you get past that short-term pain point, right? And, and that, can you, I guess and then the question is, can you? So I spent, you know, I wrote this book, Media Virus, in like 1994, and spent three or four years going and doing talks at these big corporations, because viral media was the new thing, and uh, thinking like uh, uh, Matt Groening, who was doing The Simpsons for Fox, thinking we can do more good than harm by getting in the belly of the beast and releasing, you know, he was releasing Bart Simpson, I was releasing, you know, these contagious mimetic grenades into their little, into their minds. Um, but I felt like it was just not just an uphill battle, but that these companies were were constitutionally uh, uh, allergic or opposed to the sustainability of our species. Yeah. They have to grow. Yeah. You know, the reward basis isn't designed for them to be really amenable to those ideas. Right. You know, it's impo- if you're judged by your short-term performance over any period, you can't think the opposite. And the ideas that that you're talking about are you know, they're long-term ideas because you're talking species survival. Right. Right? And and all the pieces that that encompasses, you know, in the same way, if I walk into an organization and I'm trying to do some work around the, the internal, external culture and pointing out things that I feel are should make them more aware of, of humanity, then that can be co-opted as well, right? right? But despite my own best intentions, you right. know, or and others like me, you know, I'm not a lone pilgrim <laughs> walking in the forest. I think all of us endeavor to do work that's going to be meaningful. Um, but we have to also recognize that the challenge is to push back against that co-option, you know, to push back against the forces that want to twist it into just doing more of the same. Which is, I mean, that's why it's interesting now, you know, it's like the Google employees, they wrote this open letter to, or I guess open letter to management saying, look, we just found out that this thing we're working on is actually a, a censored version of Google for the Chinese government. Uh, let's talk about this. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're, they're basically demanding, look, we are programming stuff that may not be consistent with our ethics, and we demand oversight on what it is that we are building. That's... That's a very different role for labor, but it's because labor is so qualified at this point. Exactly. <laughs> These are $150,000 a year exactly. laborers. But they're, but they're in the forefront of, of where this stuff is going. And if we're in a world where the surveillance capitalism is pervasive and you know it becomes this, this slope where we become more accustomed to it, become more accustomed to it, become more accustomed to it. You know, and I remember years ago when you were one of the first people, and I always cite this, you've really, I think in my mind, identified these things way before they become in the mainstream. So when I look at these current conversations around Facebook and Google and surveillance and what they're doing, 
you were talking about this stuff, at least to my knowledge, maybe even prior to, right. but when I became aware of it, like 2010, 2011, mm. 2012, right. you know, and here we are in 2018 on the cusp of 2019, and it's only now becoming something that I would think it's in mainstream, right? Right. It's not in those fringes of asking these sort of ethical questions. They've moved out of the spaces where people are expert and now moved into now layman spaces. Right. Which you know, partly the which gift I mean of, with the no gift judgment. of the Russians. You yeah. Know? <laughs> in some ways. Yeah. yeah. And and that's and that's interesting to me that, you know, these are human centered problems, right? right? Like you're we're really debating ethical and and philosophical for lack of a better word questions that have technological outputs but we're trying to figure out like well what does it mean for me to work in this organization where you know facial surveillance technology which is being touted to solve issues of around um you know just disparities in in the justice system might not really have that application right yeah you know like we already live in a world where physical identification is mm, really not that good. When you start yeah. really looking into the so-called eyewitness report is the gospel through law and order and all this kind of stuff. But when you really study criminal justice, you realize like, you know, eyewitness reports are kind of sketch. Yep. They're not really that good. No. And the, <laughs> al and the algorithms that we're using eyewitness reports and human judgment to, to create are just as if not more biased than the people who made them. You exactly. know, machines are learning, you know, but machine learning, where are they learning from? They're learning from They're stupid, learning from biased, us. prejudiced, racist people. Exactly. <laughs> you know, We're oops. still wrestling with all yeah. of this, right? And the machines are not going to be the elixir. You know, they're not going to be the things that well, just no. solve everything If anything, for they do us. the opposite. They lock in our prejudices at whatever current moment we're in. I mean, and they prevent the progression Hopefully, the progression of values forward. Exactly. I mean, and imagine if they locked in the, the, the values of, you know, Bible era time. We'd be yeah. stoning sorceresses to death and <laughs> stuff, you know? <laughs> sorceresses. I love that, right? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, we got to constantly be in a space where we're asking questions about what is the world we want to create. And it's not about, in my mind, dismissing the technology, but it's figuring out what place do we want it to play in our lives, you know, because we're ultimately interacting with one another, right? And we see these conflict spaces. We, we chatted a little bit about this before we picked up the mics, right? That mm. conflict is seems to be spreading, even in these spaces that are supposed to be global town halls, right? right. As, as they've been branded. Yeah. <laughs> now, I... I, I'm with you in that, look, I'm not going to abandon digital technologies just because they've done some awful things or they can be used that way. Because I still think like any like any interesting tool, they could be used for really powerful stuff. And I'm hoping, you know, doing this podcast and being digital and remote and decentralized. Yay. You know, I couldn't do this uh, uh, in the old days. But you you so the your willingness to embrace digital technology, I can get. Your willingness to go in to the corporations is something that I tried and either I failed at or got afraid of or it just feels like they're so constitutionally opposed to what it is that that going in feels it feels 
futile to me on on some level. And for you, you're feeling, you're thinking, I'm I'm assuming you're thinking that well, first corporations already kind of rule the world, so we can't just ignore them. We gotta work with them. And you feel there is a path towards steering corporate activity towards social good. Yeah, and it's you know it's all activity in a way like. I, I know it's it's easy to frame like the corporate argument, and I do that as well. Um, but really, all organizations have these same challenges. You know, my goal is much bigger than like you know. I'm not that interested in like the widgets. You know what I just that's yeah. just my term for any end goal product. Right. It's it's more into thinking. Right. How do we make these spaces work? for for everyone right in in the general broad sense of the, the society so right. it's sort of a stewardship model as this is a limited resource right and, and we can't continue to perform and act as if it's an infinite resource and it's there not. seems to and there seems <laughs> to be sort of two ways that you do that so first there's like on on philipmckenzie.com there's there's some of the things that you say, there's sort of like these guiding principles for, for companies, which are essentially the same guiding principles of Team Human, which yeah. is sort of like, look, you can't, yeah, data could be useful for this, but you can't start treating your human beings like data. You can't make database decisions. You can use technology in ways to express, you know, human creativity, but you can't use it as a replacement for it. I mean, it's basically you're arguing the same kinds of things, except you're doing it in I mean, and I mean this in the best of ways, but I, you're doing it in a bait and switch fashion. Hmm. So if a company looks at me to think they're going to bring me in at this point, they think, oh, we're going to bring in someone who hates us and wants to harm us, but maybe will tell us some things that are still valuable to us. <laughs> but you have this veneer of like, look, I understand the culture. I understand where we at, where we're at. I understand all the trends that are happening. So bring me in, and I can help align you guys with what's really going on. But what that actually means is I'm going to help align you with what's really going on here, which is that we are a civilization in crisis. People are confused. They need to reconnect with each other and the planet. And yeah. That's the critical thing, <laughs> you know, because. But it, it's weird. How do you make them? So, but you are you are you're you are able to sell that as business advice rather than as activist attack. Yeah, because it's <laughs> because it's people, right? Like businesses, we're just all humans. Right. Like we're the ones making these decisions. We're making these choices, right? Like they might be in the context of a business, but there's still. That's the core thing of it, right? So when I, I went to um, Sustainable Brands, which is a big conference event, and I, I, you know, I, I'm not in the sustainable space, right? So automatically I'm sort of an outsider. And you know, I was like, this is not about supply chain management. This is about people, right? Having things based on like trust and love. And these are, they're ancient things, I call like ancient user experience but they drive everything. You know, I think like it sounds maybe hokey to those who are in cure, a purely like predatory perspective, but in my mind, I'm like, that's the mystery of what makes all of this worth. But that does living. go to supply chain because you know. if you're, if you're 
supply chain dude who's going out to you know China to get these parts whatever, is looking at everybody and everything with love, then he's going to be like, oh, these little slave children who are being sent into caves to get rare earth metals, I can't love them and send them. Yeah, and do this work. Right. Right. We got to figure out another way, you know, and I don't have the answers for all of that. Right. right. Like I, I say all the time, like if we were really pricing things like iPhones and all and you know, just use them as an example in a way that really measured their impact on, you know, the planet and human beings, these should be like thousands of dollars, right? right. But we don't have, we, our extraction model doesn't price those things into the cost. Right. Then, you know? then it's tricky. So you go in, if you go into an Apple, say, and you talk to them about, well, look at all of the, the pain and cost that you're externalizing to others as a way of making profit. Maybe rather than buying back stock with all this money, you want to externalize less harm? Yeah. I mean, do you talk like that to a, a yeah. company? I, w I have not sat down with Apple, <laughs> but I would, yeah. say, I would say that, right? Like, that's the core of it because you have to decide as best you can what is this, what do you want the world to look like, right? And I know where I'm living, right? I live in New York. I grew up in a Western you know, Western industri industrialized nation. If I go into a Target and I buy three T-shirts for $5, I know why those T-shirts are $5, right? Some people don't think about that. I try right. to think about that and factor it into my decision-making process as to how I live my life. Not in a I'm better than you way, but it's just how I'm conditioned to sort of think about these things, right? That The fact that I'm bearing that cost and thinking about it to me is no different than how far ahead you were with the privacy and surveillance stuff. Right. Like eventually, as those resources become more scarce, the weather becomes worse, all the effects start to pile on, We, all of us will have to come to that conclusion and your do-gooderism or however people want to sort of poo-poo those yeah. ideas won't be enough, right? When the waters start to rise. Like right. New York City experienced that when the last huge hurricane and they're still dealing with it right as a lifetime new yorker i could see where that was the watershed moment when sandy hit new york the you know public transportation was you know we're always going to complain about public transportation because yeah. we're new yorkers but it was incredibly better yeah. than what it had been and sandy it's no longer right it's declining again you know, so you're seeing a combination of a weather event that seriously adversely affected New York City's ability to move around. You know, when the L train shuts down, all the hipsters are not going to have their train. I That's know. a direct result of Sandy. I know. That's going to hit all the trust fund babies over yeah. in Williamsburg. What are they going to do? To trust the ferries, right? <laughs> They're not going to be able to get the point A to point B, <laughs> you know. But that's a manifestation of that storm, and it's a it's a very concrete new york city example of of you know having to be aware that these things are happening right you know and and how do you build structures that are going to be able to you know plan for them before the occurrence right before the event yeah because when the event happens is now already too late right sandy was what four years ago five yeah. years ago and they're just getting around to repairing the L line that's going right. to cause it to be shut down for they say 18 months, two years, which means four. 
Right. <laughs> right. I know, but and New moving York City around talk. moving around, you know, Manhattanites from their their homes to their offices is is you know, is peanuts compared to moving around, you know, a billion people in low-lying, you know, territories who are going to become migrants and exactly. immigrants over national lines. Yeah. It's like and nobody even wants to acknowledge that's happening. And we can't even handle what we're dealing with now. Right? So all the stresses that we're seeing you know, Brexit and, you know, European nations becoming more right, Trump, all of this I talk around immigration and migrants and refugees, this tip of the iceberg, right? And so it comes back to these bigger conversations. Some of them are in the field, right? There's people who do this kind of work. I'm not one of them that understand those crises far more than I do. But I do appreciate from a sort of a macro level how much all of that is connected to shaping my space, mm -hmm. you know, in my world and those around me, you know. And then you, you guys also do, uh, or your team does uh, these, these trend report things. Yeah. Like I saw this one and I think they're for money, right? Like this one on AI and VR. And oh yeah. That one was like a little <coughs> test model. So what know? is that? Can you tell me what's in there? Yeah. Yeah. And all it's going on tape, so everyone's going to know. Actually, yes, I can. Right. It's it was, <laughs> you know, our opportunity or our our kind of task to, you know, rework the trend report model. Like I've written that type of stuff before. All and, these like and, Cassandra reports on yeah. what are fourteen year old girls going to be buying next, you know, yeah. Thursday. Some of it is like yeah. that. More of it is kind of again moving from observation to insight, right? Like right. not just oh, this is happening to more long-term view. And what we, what I did in that conversation was basically got together folks that are in the AI, AR, VR space, you know, at, at different junctures. You know, right. they all play different roles within that space and really asked them, the discussion was really centered on some of the ethical questions, right? You know, I was... Myself, I was kind of reading in various magazines and publications about, you know, the issues the issues around bias in those spaces, how they were manifesting, you know, those who cannot see me yet or listening, you know, I'm a black guy. So mm -hmm. those are always like kind of front and center issues for me, like thinking about, you know, how are those going to impact, you know, perhaps right. marginalized spaces. And, you know, I think change and those ideas have to come from those who are going to ask those questions. Right. Right. Um, so really the bulk of that conversation is around that. Like we're not talking so much about, you know, oh, well, we're going to be able to use VR to go shopping and to do, it wasn't like a output conversation. Uh -huh. It was more a conversation around, you know, if we're talking about building virtual worlds, if we're talking about technology learning, much in the way we started, you know, what are machines going to learn? You know, what are these virtual worlds going to look like if we already have existing worlds that are incredibly segregated? Right. Right. You know, like, are we going to take these same models and just transport them into digital or, or virtual models? So the, the bulk of the conversation was to bring together practitioners to have that more ethics-based conversation. So I think an organization who might download that for 10 bucks, they're not going to walk away with like, 
hey guys, we should all now do X. Right. But I would hope that it would be thought provoking in a way that when they're sitting in design meetings, when they're thinking about their rollouts, they start to factor in those bigger ethical questions. Right. You did know, you so end we're not with, course correcting at the Right. But did you end up end. with sort of a, a best practices of some kind or suggestions on if you're going to deploy AR, VR, AI things, what should people have in mind? I mean, what did you figure out? Um, one of the things we figured out in that conversation, and, and I maintain this throughout, right. is um, hire or work with more people that are like social scientists. <laughs> you know, like I don't know how much of these teams, when I say teams, like big technology-driven teams, actually really spend time with people in the humanities. Yeah, well, to hire me. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's <laughs> what, I mean... You that's know, what the, that's what they need, yeah, right? And humanists, yeah, you know, not, yeah, and not at the end as yeah. an add-on. They need it at the beginning of right. the of and the process. Even I've been arguing that that engineers and developers need uh, ethicists and humanists in their education. Oh yeah, you know, a liberal is one of the biggest challenges to like STEM. I know, right? Like STEM again is one of these like it's gonna solve everything, right? We're dealing with pipeline problems, so let's just steer kids towards STEM. And, you know, I went to an engineering school. I went to Brooklyn Tech, right? Uh -huh. It was a heavy science and math engineering, like walking around with T-squares and yeah. surveyors <laughs> things and a, and a construction shop right. on our roof. Like it was hands-on engineering stuff. But I still, part of my education was the humanities, right? History and English. I minored right. in that stuff in college, even though I was a finance um, major, I minored in philosophy right. and African American studies. Like, exactly, well, it's humanities and and social yeah. science. Yeah, you have to yeah. know how to think. But this is exactly <laughs> what the Google employees are asking for. Yeah. They're saying, "Look, you you're treating us only as engineers, but we're actually human beings yeah. who care about the impact of our work on the world in which we live." Yeah. And that's critical, right? Right. You need that grounding to be able to even properly frame the challenge. Right. If you don't even know like the history of let's say you're you're someone looking at like migration, right? Refugee or climate based migration and you don't understand maybe the history of the region, the conflicts, who the people are, you're not gonna be successful in transitioning right. them from one place but to another. But that's the core then of the cultural anthropologists dilemma yeah and both of us are that yeah i'm so, in the dilemma but we are in but we are in the dilemma because it's like so you look at you know margaret mead maybe one of the first of us so margaret mead she's doing all this work going out to samoa and do but then what's her work being used for it's she's going back and reporting to one of fdr's departments to figure out and they're using it to figure out how do we take over these islands when we're fighting the japanese yeah, when it's all done right <laughs> cultural anthropologists you go into nike or google because we're trying to humanize them and get them to respect reality but at the same time they look at human beings they also look at human beings as the problem to be solved so their business model can keep steamrolling keep over yeah. us so how do we ensure that our work is being used in the way we want i mean i've taken a slightly chicken roll out by saying okay i just can't go in there because i'm <laughs> I, you know i just can't do it so i'm gonna work at a public university do mm -hmm. a show that like this, who could absolutely has no chance of making money. You know, <laughs> I mean, basically, 
You know what I mean, though. But yeah. it's like it's a weird. I've 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 ended up so burned. I guess I feel like by how it was really how media virus became or viral media, which is my term, became yeah. viral marketing. I felt so burned by that that I kind of haven't even stepped foot yeah, in there into again. The fray. Yeah, you know, because I don't know how to. I don't know. So how do you? How do you, I guess you can't guarantee it, but how do you try to take measures that you're you are cultural anthropologizing them and they're not doing, culture, it, doing it back to you? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I have a really good answer to that, right? I, I wrestle with it all the time, right? And I think to a certain extent, every person's got to make their own decisions, and it's it's ironic because I I feel like I've been having this conversation in a lot of different spaces even if not directly connected to this work right like where do you draw the lines on you know being a collaborator or being a part of something is can you pull good out of bad things like right. you know where do, we, where do you draw the yeah, line where are you, you going to use an apple computer when you know slaves made it but oh wait yeah. a minute so now i can't you know do i can i drive my car well no i really shouldn't yeah. drive and so you can get down this sort of rabbit hole of yeah. no return. And I asked um, like a core group of, of friends that I've worked with and they're brothers of mine and we love each other and we share stuff all the time. And there was an article that was in the post and the post is a rag. So you kind of take it with a grain of salt. But it was basically saying like, you know, Spike Lee has um, Spike DBO or I think that's the full name like he has like an agency within like the large right dbo agency right that business below the line kind of yeah. stealth and, marketing stuff or whatever and he yeah. did a project for nypd and so the the article was like you know spike lee's fairly outspoken as it pertains to um, police violence and police brutality yeah. and where he stands on that famously would do the right thing and many public statements and so the question was you know it's kind of like gotcha like oh spike lee says this but yet his agency did this project for nypd and you know i was kind of like i don't know right <laughs> like i wouldn't take that check right mm -hmm. but i don't know i love spike lee right <laughs> so right. then that becomes the challenge right when i was in high school spike lee literally lived across the street from brooklyn tack and then he had a store at the time called spike's joint that sold right. like all his stuff and that was on the other side so i was kind of spent my formative teen years like buttressed by spike lee and you know he was like one two movies in so like right. his second movie he filmed a video for that in my high school and so we would see Spike all the time, like riding his bike and all that kind of stuff. So Spike Lee's had an incredible cultural impact on the way I view the world. Like he put Brooklyn on the map when nobody was talking about Brooklyn in the way that they kind of have gentrified yeah. Brooklyn now. But yeah, when I read that, I was like, that kind of sucked, right? But what do we do, right? Like how do I figure out everyone's got to make those choices, you know? Right, and we don't know what he was doing. I mean, yeah, it could have been no to help community relations and yeah, telling... Could be, possibly. Please, don't shoot yeah, black Yeah, don't kill men. black people, right? <laughs> but it's... But it's cause you, but you see those things and then you react. And right. so that's my only point is that I'm, I try to place myself in a position where... And I, and I do this with this cultural prime directive, you know, do no harm. 
Right. You know, that's like the first principle. Like I try to walk into a place and think about what I'm doing, where this could possibly manifest itself. And I hope that I'm not doing harm to other people. Right. So that's sort of my litmus test right. at the end of every day. Finally, I mean, another another antidote to this. I want to kind of end on this is uh, you also do, you know, the two dope boys. Yeah. Podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, your other boy is not dope. <laughs> he is dope He's in his dope. own way. In a yeah. different way. It is his own way. dope. I that's thought you what, have to be black what, to be dope. No, you don't actually. Dopeness comes in all colors, shades, so creeds, genders. You can be. It's a it's a mentality of doing good work. As long as you do good work, it's dope, right? Really? Yeah, of course. Oh, it's not it's not I measured. Feel better. It's not it's <laughs> definitely not measured by um race and skin. It's it's measured by the quality of your outputs. So as long as your outputs are are cool. You know, they're helpful, they're adding, not taking away, right. you know, then you're in the dope category. Oh, good. So that's the key. And, and, and you know, we record the show. Um, we've been on a little bit of, hi- of a hiatus, uh-huh. so we haven't been, like, doing uh, shows in a while. But, you know, I encourage everyone to, like, check out the archives and see, you know, our conversation. We yeah. sat down with you and and many others, you know, who I think are, again, you know, trying to do their best work and you know, challenge the status quo. And you see that, is that sort of the mission of of Two Dope Boys? Yeah, it's to always be, like, you know, we use the catchphrase and this comes from my work, you know, it's a shout out from the margins, right? So our focus is to always bring these conversations to the forefront that might not be in the mainstream, but there's going to be value there. You know, you're going to talk to someone who's going to give you a different perspective on an issue in a way that you weren't really either expecting or thinking about. And that's really important. I remember we had um, Steve Lewis, who's a, a, a very famous nightlife guy, and he's been on the show a few times. And, you know, people would think that you're going to get these these very sort of salacious stories about New York nightlife and drugs and, you know, the usual, which is a part of it. But when you start talking to him, you realize that there's so much about the way a city runs that's caught up in the nightlife of it, right? The extra shifts in, you know, where nightlife is moving as neighbor, as neighborhoods gentrify, right? Mm. Um, who, who does it affect, you know, the economics of a particular nightlife experience? And then, I mean, interestingly, like Steve talked a lot about as the city becomes more homogenous and spaces where people used to have nightlife, now people live. So, of course, now noise ordinance comes into place. And so the city council wants to, like, shut down nightlife earlier and all this kind of stuff. So it's less noisy and disruptive, which for light quality of life sounds really good. But then when you think about a city like New York, that's 24 hours, you know, the later, the earlier those things shut down are additional, like, cabs that don't run late at night. It's all the late night vendors that are open to kind of feed people you know, is that extra shift at a restaurant that you no longer need to have. Like, right, when this thing shut down, the streets get more dangerous yeah. too. Yeah, it's a lot more yeah. than just, oh, young people want to be assholes in clubs, right? It's actually a a long supply chain of people yeah. who are all part of that process. Well, that goes back to, to your early vibrant. days, though. That's back, yeah. you know, and I remember um, David Hershkovitz, uh, uh, he ran Paper Magazine. Yeah. You know, that was, they were fighting the Giuliani New York, you know, and it, they weren't fighting for crime or grime. They were fighting for the, the vibrancy. vibrancy and the yeah. life. 
Yeah, where you have a city space that doesn't look all the same, you know. So for those who come to New York now, I, I joke with friends. I'm like, the the fastest growing retailer in New York is Space for Rent. That's all I see. I've never seen the two things I've seen the most in New York City is construction. So there's scaffolding and construction everywhere, and it's in all the boroughs. Yeah. Um, in a way where entire blocks and neighborhoods you can't even see storefronts. It's just scaffolding. Right, and it makes you think that development is not the process. Development is the goal. Yeah, development is the goal. You know, it's never, (laughs) you've never been better, it's never been a better time to be a construction worker in New York. Like, we no longer have the old kind of Rockwell-esque pictures of like, you know, construction workers hanging out on girders with their lunch pail. But if we had the equivalent equivalent of that, this is the time to start recapturing that because they are very well employed in terms of there's so many projects. So if you are right. good at what you do, I imagine the bidding for like good contractors is through the roof. And the and the the projects are replacing, you know, New York institutions yep. like other music. You know, yep. shut down. It's like a friggin' bank or something yep. now. It's you all know? banks. It's all Dwayne Reed. Walgreens bank of some sort, pharma, right? Big pharma and big banking, yeah. and um, healthcare companies. So those sort of market healthcare, where you have health net things, where yeah. you you don't have a doctor, so you just go there. Right. Another part of like disaster capitalism, right? right. That, it is, and they're franchised from major hospitals. Yeah, they're networks. everywhere now, right? And and then the other piece, like I said, is that all these storefronts are just empty. You know, so you no longer have that like walkability of the city where you just enter into a neighborhood, sort of the Jane Jacobs model and you explore. Right. Because there's different. Oh, this guy sells this thing. and This person has this. Now it's all. Buy it all on Amazon and stay in your house. Exactly. Get fresh direct delivered. Exactly. And leave the world alone. So that's what we do. We, you know, I don't (laughs) think I don't think someone would have walked into a Steve Lewis conversation being who he is and think you're going to end up talking about, you know, cityscapes, gentrification, right. and, you know, the gig economy, you know. Right. But, but that's where we ended up, you know. And, and and that's the value, I think, in having those types of conversations. So these people are on the ground, right? He might not be Richard Florida, but, you know, he has a perspective that I think is just as valuable. And when you add them together, then you're off to the races. And that's the cool part. Cool. It's dope. Dope. thank you so much for being on team human thanks so much for having me i've been looking forward to this you're on team human listening to our first guest two dope boys podcast host and consultant philip mckenzie i'm Alyssa court and i'm on team human i'm nathan schneider and i'm on team human i'm sarah lagesson and i'm on team human i'm dana boyd and i'm on team human this is Genesis Briar Piorich, one half of Briar Piorich, and we're glad to say we are part of this beautiful organism, the humane species, otherwise known as Team Human. Well, here on Team Human, we've been advocating local bottom-up solutions to the world's problems, even if they never scale to anywhere else. Sometimes solutions that work 
are specific to the people and places they're being applied. And that's surely the case with Michael Wood Lewis's Front Porch Forum. Need a hammer? A babysitter? Lost your cat? Running for Congress? If you're in Vermont, then Front Porch Forum is for you. It's a pleasure to speak with you. The journey that you're on and the, the questions you've been asking are something that I started to look at in the, I guess, late 90s, and early 2000s when I helped uh, Scott Hefferman start Meetup. And oh, yeah. Uh, Meetup.com, it was a great idea. I mean, I had just done a talk where I was quoting Timothy Leary and find the others and all this about, you know, how the net uh, should be used to connect people and then uh, get them into real places together rather than uh, just conversing online in Yahoo groups or whatever it was at the time. But the the problem with Meetup is that it it kind of surrenders to the the internet's wet dream of, yeah, we're fine to connect people, but we're much happier, in other words, the internet is much happier connecting two Nike lovers who live a thousand miles away than two people who apparently have nothing in common and live right next door to each other. (laughs) You know what I mean? They love our affinities, our abstracted affinities, as if that's what connects people rather than... uh, the fact that they live in the same place with one another. And I feel like your system, in some ways, like a like a Craigslist almost, that your system uh, kind of compensates for the net's otherwise atomizing, alienizing qualities. I mean, how did you how did you sort of think this up? I mean, does it really start with with moving to Vermont and not knowing your neighbors well enough? Yes, yes, it did. And, and quite a while ago now, in fact, it was... It was back in 2000, mm-hmm. and uh, we started a precursor to Front Porch Forum in our own neighborhood, and um, it, it really took off. And one of the early signs that we knew something good was was happening um, was I, I would walk to my job every day or bike, and I'd go by um, this one house that had a big vehicle parked in its driveway with a Political bumper sticker I did not like. And, you know, I've got my political opinions and I accept that other people have theirs. But boy, this one rubbed me the wrong way. And I didn't know the people who lived there and they weren't that far down the street from me uh, in this, you know, neighborhood of single family homes on tiny, uh, tiny lots and duplexes. But I started to make assumptions. I started to paint a picture of who this person was. And it wasn't a pretty picture, just based on on uh, on his bumper sticker. Hmm. Well, one day on our front porch forum, I saw that uh, somebody was selling a table saw for you know a, a steal of a deal. And boy, did I get excited at the idea of having my very own table saw. What 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 could I build with that? And for that kind of money, I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is incredible. And I was uh, I, I looked up the address, I, you know, I saw the address and I, I started to approach it. But in the opposite direction, I usually would have gone past this particular house. And before I knew it, and there, there was no car in the driveway. I rang the doorbell and I was waiting for the person to answer. And as I stood there and heard the person approaching, it suddenly dawned on me that this was the house <laughs> with the offensive bumper sticker. 
And I just about bolted. I just did a, almost did a ding-dong ditch it from my childhood. Um, but I stood my ground, and this fellow opened the door who, geez, he could have been one of my uncles from my childhood. And uh, gregarious, hello, kind of, uh, you know, the kind of guy who would have World War II vet stories, you know. And boy, did he take me right under his wing and shepherd me down his basement and showed me his table saw and started telling me tales about the neighborhood when, you know, he'd been there for 50 years. And well, to cut to the short, we, I never did buy the table saw, but, but we became friends and neighbors and they became kind of like, uh, well, they really adored our kids as, uh, where, you know, our kids were just being born right about that time. And, you know, even though we didn't agree at all on politics, we saw each other not first as political enemies or allies, but as neighbors, as people, as, you know, and we were more interested in, you know, their, their adult daughter who had cancer and they were more interested in our young son and, and his recent illness and, you know, and helping each other out and the fact that there were some break-ins in the neighborhood and when was the uh, annual block party. And, and we really started to get to know each other and it, it just opened my eyes to the fact that this tool where I had first learned of, you know, this opportunity where I could go knock on their door, um, you know, even though it was uh, kind of sneaky, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't intend to do it. It drew me into actual conversation and, and helped break down this barrier that allowed me to have a real world, um, you know, connection with a neighbor. I mean, it's interesting that the, uh, the bumper sticker itself is almost almost represents an entire sort of universe of ideologies that you know maybe we adopt them in well-meaning ways because the ideology represents something that we kind of believe in you know whether it's I want my gun or I want mm-hmm. you know Bernie Sanders whatever it might mean to us but ideologies almost uh, almost uh, uh, invariably serve as uh, ways of dividing people rather than connecting them. You know, I, I was just, I was just writing about how the, um, you know, the Native Americans looked at uh, European conquerors as, as being sick with a disease. They didn't understand how these people could just kill people and destroy nature and, and not to seem to have any understanding of, of local human to human reality. And it's largely because they were, you know, they were playing programs. They were trapped in ideologies, which made them so much more vulnerable mm. to this behavior. You know, where where front porch is sort of ideological free as a, you know what I mean, as a connective platform. We see it as a front porch forum, as a place for connections to be made among neighbors and as a starting point and a catalyst for face-to-face conversation. Uh, we, we will get feedback, not infrequent feedback, from new users who will say, you know, your platform is not optimized for online discussion. Let me give you some tips. <laughs> we, <laughs> we listen. We listen and we thank them. And, you know, sometimes we learn something for sure. But we invariably say, well, that's not what we're optimizing for. We want FPF to be a place where ideas start conversations start, 
and, and they're sped up, they're catalyzed, and then it goes offline and, and onto the sidewalk. There, there's a, a great pull with social media and mobile and all things digital that will pull an enterprise like this in a non-productive direction. And there's a gravitational force. Um, Front Porch Forum has resisted that. Right. So the the platform itself, for people who haven't gotten to see it, and I guess, you know, right now and by design, it's limited to uh, communities in Vermont to use. But the, the way it works is what? It's basically almost like an email newsletter at this point. Yeah. So frontporchforum.com. So we serve every community in the state of Vermont. And we're a mission-driven business, and our mission is to help neighbors connect and build community. And when people sign up, they are uh, have given the opportunity to join the single front porch forum that serves their immediate community where they live. And we have 150,000 members in our state. Our state has 260,000 households. And yes, Vermont is tiny. Um, and so in many communities, more than half of your neighbors uh, will already be using your local FPF. It's not meant to be a real-time, live, rapid-fire, back-and-forth kind of thing. You, know, you cannot waste or spend hours a day. There's no rabbit hole on Front Porch Forum to fall into. You know, uh, there's no YouTube video recommendation engine or anything. <laughs> it's, it's 10 minutes a day of postings from your neighbors that land uh, in your email inbox or in your web browser. And you look at the items, you see whose dog is lost, who's got a yard sale, who's got a concern about uh, syringes found at the park, you know, who's running for office, who thinks the, uh, you know, the telecom services could be better or, you know, whatever the issue is. And then you follow up on it or you don't. And tomorrow it's the same thing. And by following up, it's mostly like, I've got a bike for sale. Call me if you're interested. You just call that person. You don't follow up on the list. But if someone's right. saying on the list, gosh, there's a lot of mosquitoes this week. Or is anybody else noticing that? Then someone can reply to that topic in the, in the email. And there's a human being, I guess, then that edits the next day's release. Yeah, so we think of it as you know, a daily e-newsletter for each community. And it lands on people's virtual front porches uh, every evening about the same time. And, uh, you know, it's got that day's collections of postings. So we don't do threaded conversations. Again, we want to be a starting point and a catalyst for real-world conversation at the, the you know, the, the, the local store wherever people gather. Maybe it leads to a, a meeting, a public meeting, a local official more than once has called for a public meeting about a certain topic, you know, uh, changing from a four-lane road to a three-lane road and bike lanes. You know, it was a hot topic in Burlington a while ago, and there was a lot of postings on Front Porch Forum that led to more and more public meetings and, you know, led to a lot more people being engaged in that process. So if a topic starts to really happen, then someone would just say, let's meet and talk about this. Because it's not going fast enough, I guess. I mean, which is part of the beauty of it then, that people don't get in these ridiculous fights. These they, They've got so much time to consider how they're going to respond to something. More like, you know, like the early internet when you had, you, know, you were in maybe a BBS or something, but 
it was slowed down by by force because you had to dial into a server and download the conversation and then you would unplug and you'd read the whole conversation you'd decide how you're going to respond and then go back online and plug it in and and upload the thing and this kind of uh recreates the the more i don't know contemplative intentional um internet rather than that more spasmodic impulsive thing that we see on facebook Yes, yes. You see more complete sentences and paragraphs on Front Porch Forum than OMGs and, you know, a a scattershot type of comments that you see in other formats. And it is slow. It's just kind of like the slow food movement. Um, It's like, hey, let's just take a deep breath. And that, that does frustrate some people, but usually it's new members. And after they've been on service for a while, they, uh, uh, come to understand the particular pacing and they, you know, we, we, we see almost no churn. People come to Front Porch Forum, they sign up and they stay. Right. So Front Porch Forum in itself is not the place that you'd post, can someone pick up my kid from school today? I've got to go to the dentist. But it's hopefully a place where you would have made contacts with people who then you feel good about calling to say, can you pick up my kid today? Well, exactly. And we've seen Um, that Front Porch Forum leads to increased social capital, to use a term. You know, people know more people. They have richer and more diverse networks of neighbors after they started using Front Porch Forum for several months. We had a a natural disaster here in Vermont uh, several years ago, Uh, Tropical Storm Irene. It was a hurricane, and by the time it hit Vermont, it was a tropical storm that led to flash flooding, like 100-year level flooding in several Mm -hmm. communities. And it was sporadic, you know, one town would be devastated and then all the surrounding towns fine. And one more town over wiped out all these small towns. And at that time, we were only in about one out of four uh, towns in the state. And the few that had pre-existing front porch forum service for a year or more before the disaster, it was found later, rebounded faster than the communities that didn't. And while they used FPF to communicate right up, you know, before the, the storm and, and a little bit during the storm and some after to get organized, you know, that certainly was valuable. What we discovered was the bigger impact was Front Porch Forum, a local librarian uh, told me, she said Front Porch Forum was, uh, uh, was uh, a fertilizer for local networks. Uh, you know, she said the, the PTA, a PTO uh, was enlivened during that first year of Front Porch Forum. The, the dog Wednesday morning dog walking group was formed, a committee on this, a committee on that, a, a, a adult soccer league got started. You know, all these kind of real world networks of people with neighbors started to happen again. A 4th of July party was organized for the first time you know, in a generation. And so when disaster hit and the internet and the cell service was actually down, People knew each other, and, and they knew where to go, uh, and they knew who to check in on, uh, who might need help, or who might have a chainsaw uh, to help clear the road. And that's really interesting to me. I mean, the the something I was working with with you know your friends at, at Vermont State Employees uh, uh, Credit Union was how, what sort of metrics did you develop for this you know community health? Yes, so. We've had observations for a long time that were anecdotal. 
And, um, you know, I should mention that one thing that's unusual about Front Porch Forum is that we employ a half dozen online community managers that monitor every posting before it's published. And so 99 plus percent of those postings go straight through, but the, the tiny fraction that violate our terms of use are stopped and dealt with, usually pushed, you know, punted back to the author saying, well, you know, uh, we, we don't uh, allow personal attacks. We don't allow things that are illegal, that kind of thing. Right. Um, so through that experience of actually skimming and reading um, thousands and thousands of postings among, among neighbors in rural, small town, suburban, and, and even small urban uh, settings, you know, we started to get a real gut feel for things. And then uh, last year, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, funded a study by a third-party research group called Network Impact. And they surveyed, well, they got something like 13,000, 15,000 Front Porch Forum members to complete a 20-minute survey. So uh, we got quite a depth of, of really interesting data and people answering questions about how things, how they use their service, how they view their community, how things may have changed uh, in their perception over time. So, you know, the short answer to your question is it's complex, you know, to try to measure social capital and whether or not it's changing. Right. But it is. I mean, so what were the, um, I mean, I've seen some of the reports, but if you could, you know, share with us, uh, you know, so people are, are more likely to participate in civic life. They're uh, more likely to interact with other people. They're more likely to see their neighborhood as a, uh, you know, a source of strength and stuff. I mean, what were the actual sort of the specific ones? Yeah, all true. So, you know, the theory that was tested and what we've seen is when people join FPF, they become better informed about what's going on around them. And then they start to witness people being more engaged. And that combination of things leads them to get more involved. And so, uh, and that's ultimately what we're after, right? Increased engagement. And so, for example, uh, when surveyed, people said that due to their participation on Front Porch Forum, 91% said they're more informed about local community issues. 84% are, are more informed about opportunities to become more engaged. 77% are more informed about what their neighbors think about local political issues, et cetera. So that increased level of, of being informed leads them to be more involved. So because of FPF, 84% of members have now attended a local event. 73% have cooperated on a shared community project. 71% have discussed local politics with a neighbor, you know, on and on. 68% intentionally have uh, bought local products, uh, engaged with local public officials, trusted neighbors have gone up, on and on. So the first step seems to be, even before facilitating the sort of local mutual aid, is simply to make the mutual aid that's already occurring more visible to people. Yeah, one of the fascinating, to me at least, outcomes of this survey that this group conducted 
they're trying to get at what's you know what's the underlying core of what's going on here and and they found that simply the act of um witnessing small acts of neighborliness on a daily basis has a profound impact certainly you know we we all can hear or read the headlines day to day of what's happening and you know, in the world stage and out of the White House, et cetera. And much of that stuff is hard, anxiety provoking, you know, violence and, and war and tragedies. And Front Porch Forum tends to be about someone saying, ah, my dog jumped the fence and ran off and it's, you know, barely out of puppyhood. And could anybody help? Has anyone seen it? And then the next day, there's a heartwarming posting about how 12 people came out and they found the dog and, you know, and it's beautiful. And tomorrow you read someone who says, Hey, I'm, I'm, we're doing a food drive for the local food shelf. And my kid is spearheading it as a class project. And, and then the next day there's a little report about how people stepped up. And those are all what we call, you know, daily small acts of neighborliness. And when you're watching that, listening to it, reading it, experiencing it yourself occasionally, it has a profound impact on how you view your community. And you begin to say, this is a place where people are paying attention, where people care about their their community and their neighbors, and where people step up. And therefore, that's how I'm going to behave. I'm going to volunteer for the next graffiti, you know, cleanup down at the park or or whatever, or I'm going to even organize something myself. I mean the the having some sort of human moderation on these posts you know helps engender this kind of community spirit that you're talking about I I guess the thing I wonder is and I try to be a fan of human nature but will do all communities end up with these sorts of results or are there communities with maybe, you know, long standing disagreement between people on this side of the field and that side of the field and whose, whose sort of animosity or acrimony just, just expresses itself on front porch. Yes. (laughs) There, you know, Vermont's an old place uh, with families that go back six, seven generations um, in the same community. Um, and there are longstanding, beautiful relationships and there are longstanding, uh, uh, you know, toxic ones, uh, as you would see anywhere in the world. Um, what we found though is, well, I'll give you a quick, uh, example. We were in one community, uh, several years ago and we were just rolling out our service and a local chamber of commerce had brought us, uh, to this collection of five towns that were all you know, kind of uh, interlinked with each other with schools and, and commerce and, and whatnot. And at that gathering, there's probably 50 people in a room and we were explaining how it worked. And, you know, there was kind of muted uh, appreciation for what we were trying to explain. And I was trying to get the feel for what was going on. And finally, this very kind of grumpy and stern woman in the front row raised her hand and said, I don't get it. We don't need this. Shut it down. We, we, we don't want this. And I said, well, well, tell me more about that. And she said, well, everybody here already knows each other. I said, oh, that's interesting. You know, <laughs> yeah, tell me more about that. Well, she, she goes on to say that by everybody, she meant the 50 people in the room. And that was the same 50 people who were on every local board committee, 
you know, et cetera, that made everything happen. And, and I said, well, I did check the census data before I came out tonight. And I know there's 2000 people in this small town. And what about them? Ugh, they never come to anything. They don't vote. They don't, they don't matter essentially. And so what we find is, you know, we reach those other, the remainder of that 2000 people through front porch forum who aren't interested in somebody's three generational feud or the same old, you know, uh, you know, that same person told me that, uh, you know, she was the chair of the local board, like her father had been and grandfather before that, and made sure to point out that her family's name was on the road, you know, uh, one of the main roads in town. And well, probably six months after Front Porch Forum got established there, uh, she was voted out of office you know, by some of those 2000 people who never participated before. And, and, and they began to participate. But it became more democratic in theory. <laughs> yeah, no, well, that's the yeah, other. Well, exactly. I mean, the it, small town politics get controlled, you know, in the way a lot of these in other communities we've seen it. Sometimes uh, someone will stay in power by controlling information. And so, you know, the classic promise of the Internet has come to be with front porch form in those places where the access to information, access to a soapbox is uh, democratized and, and more and more people participate and leadership changes. So Front Porch is Vermont limited right now. It seems that there's there's two ways for what's happening there to spread, you know, or to, to be modeled or replicated elsewhere. I mean, one is what we're doing right now. You know, they're just letting people know in an informal way, oh, the more you witness people engaged in mutual aid, the more likely you are to engage in it yourself, or the more visible we can make the connections and mutual support that 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 we do locally for one another, the more of it that we're going to see. So good begets good, and connections beget more connections, and, and all that, but are there people also trying to sort of model front porch elsewhere? Is there like a, a kit? Is there a PDF if I want to do front porch in New York or Maine or Tokyo? Yeah, good question. You know, on the one hand, it's not rocket science. On the other, it's uh, not intuitively obvious how to do this. I know uh, Stephen Clift in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, uh, eDemocracy, has done a terrific job with a nonprofit model of doing similar work. Probably the most interesting thing is people ask us, could you franchise what huh. you've got right. and, and let, you know, like a small, small town newspaper, right? Somebody gets a, a good model for, for news, uh, online news service, and it's working in town X. Gee, couldn't you give us your formula, your software, uh, your procedures, and I'll get, you know, a local source of capital and make it work in my town. But you might've noticed that hasn't happened either there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's not one model of local news on di in the digital era that's been replicated um, everywhere. You know, we discovered years ago that helping facilitating people connecting online, especially neighbors, is really a big responsibility. It's very powerful. Mm -hmm. We made our you know mistakes early on. You know, I remember a guy telling me he had to sell his house and move out of his neighborhood because of 
some things that went wrong on our service. Mm. And that hurt. I mean, the guy lived a mile away from, you know, my house and where I was raising my kids. You know, I took that very seriously. I, I, yeah, I can't imagine the things on the conscious, conscience of uh, the people who own and direct the largest uh, social networks now. When well, I hear they, about they have no conscience or they wouldn't be able to keep doing that. You know, I, on the other hand, I've seen people do miraculous and beautiful things around helping neighbors. And, you know, in addition to the kind of mundane day-to-day things of loaning a ladder, the kind of things that neighbors have always done through history, you know, someone's house burns in, in, the, in the community rally, someone, the breadwinner in a family is uh, stricken with cancer in, in the community rallies. But boy, does, does that kind of thing happen that much more frequently and richer and more people get involved uh, when Front Porch Forum is, is working in a community. So I've always seen that power of FPF. And I've said, you know, I don't, know that I would feel comfortable providing this in a community whose values, you know, I don't understand or I don't, on the surface at least, have a a good alignment with. You know, if this was in a community that was uh, outwardly racist and, and, you know, doing terrible things to keep people down, oppress people, they could use Front Porch Forum very effectively to to do that even more. Right. Or or any... uh... I mean, that's the whole point of local is different local communities are different from one another. So if you're going to do a front porch forum and say, you know, the projects of the South Bronx, where on three city blocks, you're going to have, you know, 100,000 people who may not know each other, um, you're going to get very different results than doing it over, you know, even three square miles of of people who all do know each other in, in uh uh, you know, in a town in Vermont. So it's, you know, it's tricky that way. Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, Vermont is very small. On the other hand, you know, we have multiple locations here where we have big uh, communities of new Americans uh, with, you know, in the school where my kids go, I think there are 26 different languages spoken right now. Mm. Um you know, Vermont is the whitest state, I think, in the country still at this point. But there are pockets of racial and ethnic diversity and certainly economic diversity. And, you know, we think our service in those neighborhoods are, is just as important as uh, in the places where everyone, uh, demographically at least, is uh, very close to each other. I mean, the thing that, that thrills me the most about Front Porch is the the different way that it uses the net, you know, we've almost grown. I can't believe I'm saying this, but you know, it's been 20, 25 years of, of internet, but we've almost grown accustomed to the idea that digital technology is supposed to separate us, that it's, that it's, you know, distinctly anti-local, that you go online in order to scale in whatever way you want to scale. I want to scale in the information I receive. I want to scale in the products that are available to me. I want to scale in the people that read my blog. It's always about transcending the local in order to connect with that 
thing, the big time, which feels so real. Um, but what we're actually doing in that process is leaving behind everything that is real. You know, we're we're <laughs> doing the opposite. So it feels like front porch in some ways, you know, is is a, a proof of concept for the idea that the online universe really can nourish our offline communities and sensibilities. You know, when I was, um, I went to high school and college and I was fortunate enough to be able to go to graduate school. And as I exited that experience in my mid twenties, I was everything you just described, right? I wanted more. I wanted the world. I wanted the best, you know, find the coolest songs and, and word, you know, the coolest friends and hobbies and the most interesting, compelling arguments about stuff. And when I think of much of the internet today, I think it was built for, you know, 24 year olds um, or, or whatever the, whatever, however you want to think of that. Uh, kind well, of certainly point. built by 24 year olds. Yeah. Well, there you go. It's <laughs> a small coincidence, right? But when I started Front Porch Forum, I was, uh, you know, I, I was in my mid thirties. I, I was just had the first of uh, four children, my wife and I, and we were, you know, owned our just become home or we were just becoming homeowners for the first time. And yeah, I, I was investing heavily in community. I, I yeah, I, I my interests were not about the newest, coolest, hippest, whatever. I, I had no interest in that. My interest was in it was in community, was in family, was in neighborhood was in uh how, how do we you know improve the park at the end of the street because that's that's where i want to be that was my stage of life you know that, that's ha happened to be and so i said well here's this incredibly powerful tool called the internet and more and more people are getting on it uh, back in 2000 when we started and you know it's it uh we we went we went from there but you know i see now my uh, teenage kids and their peers and you know they're they're sweet and polite to me and they're interested in front porch form they do read it and we have we have plenty of, of teenagers who use it but it's nothing like uh you know the the instagram and, and snapchat and all that other stuff that they use every day it's you know a wholly different world it is a different world, though. I mean, uh, I remember in your in your TED talk, you were asking questions like, you know, do you know as many of your neighbors as your parents did, or how, how only one in four Americans knows the names of their nearest neighbors? I mean, yeah, these are are kind of frightening statistics, but they they go a long way to explaining the sense of alienation and isolation and and suspicion that people have of one another. You know, and I loved, you know, when you moved to Vermont, that your idea for the cure, uh, the initial cure, which is something I wrote about in a book a long time ago, is, you know, going to your neighbors with, you know, with cookies and using plates from your kitchen so that the neighbor would be kind of obligated to return the plate and you would get a return visit. You know, when we moved to neighborhoods, I mean, 20, 30 or 50 years ago, I guess, when you'd move to a new neighborhood, your neighbors would come with cookies and meatloaf and things for you. And right. the reason they did it wasn't just to feed you, but to create 
a sense of social obligation, that now you owe them something. And if you owe them mm. something, then that's their invitation for you to come pay them back. It knits you to the fabric of the community, the idea of owing something. But when I find, I mean, in, in Brooklyn, I tried to engender a spirit of community among my neighbors. And what I found the main obstacle was not that people weren't willing to give stuff to one another, but they weren't willing to receive stuff from one another, as if this creates some whole set of obligations that they don't want to buy into. Oh, Doug, that's fascinating. You know, at the same time we started Front Porch Forum, no small coincidence, um, we were we fit the model that you just described of, of many of your neighbors in Brooklyn, where my wife and I, Valerie and I, did not want to accept. We were givers. We were contributors. Mm. We were, you know, ready to, you know, make a difference. We were, we were you know, in our, you know, young adults kind of, you know, we're not that young, but in our mid-30s. But uh, we... Our first child was born, and he spent the first 83 days of his life in intensive care. Uh. And we had a severe crisis. And he went on to suffer a, a serious brain injury and uh, developed a severe cerebral palsy. And he sadly passed away unexpectedly a mm. couple of years ago, um, just entering his sophomore year of high school. And we miss him terribly, our son Ben. But being Ben's dad taught me very quickly that the right response to just what you said, that the way to build community, the way to survive, because I had grown up with a neighbor uh, who had a child who had severe uh, disability, my, my best next door neighbor, buddy, his younger brother. And I saw how much they leaned on their neighbors. Um, you know, there, there was need there. And I could see we were we were in need. And so we had to start accepting um, offers of help. Um, and at first, like, no, 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 we've got this. No, we're OK. No, we're OK. And finally, somebody pulled us over and said a mother of a child in a similar situation who was five years older and said, listen, stop that. You have to accept because you don't have the capacity. You think you do now, but you won't in a few months you know, physically uh, or financially or many other ways. And that is how you build community. You say, yes, thank you. And then you pay it forward when you can. Mm. And so that's been a large part of our approach with Front Porch Forum is give people a chance to um, ask for help, and provide help. It's funny, we have a, an algorithm that kind of ranks the most compelling postings. And so people come in and they think, oh, I, gee, a free bike, that must be the most compelling posting of the day. And I say, oh, no, no, no. It's this one down here where the person's asking for advice about how to hang a window shade. Huh. Because that person is being vulnerable and asking for help. This will stimulate not only offers of help and conversation, but it will demonstrate to people that this is a place where, you know, you can be a neighbor. You can be a friend to somebody. You can you can say, hey, I need a little help here. Right. So in a sense, your experience with your son of, you know, being forced to turn into the kind of person that accepts help um, really 
let you bear witness to hundreds, if not thousands of acts of human kindness directed right at you. You know, and in in some ways it feels like this this company you started is a way of of, of kind of spreading that, of saying, look, accept accept the love and support of your neighbors and you're you're going to start making the world a better place as a result. Well, and that's where the survey comes in, where they found that the number the researchers found the number one impact, you know, the reason why uh, people get more informed, get more engaged and all that is this witnessing these daily small acts of neighborliness. It's not just acts of charity. An act of neighborliness by this definition is someone saying, I need help. Mm. You know, it, it's not, I'm the big shot. I'm going to donate, you know, you know, a, a bed to the homeless shelter or something. It's, I mean, that's lovely, but it's uh, the, the person even saying something as simple as, I'm looking for a new mechanic. Can someone tell me? Uh, and it's so interesting. Um, early on, I'd have neighbors ask me, uh, you know, can you post it for me? I said, well, what do you mean? It's like, why don't you, you just go on there and you, you, you click here, you click there. And like, no, 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 I'm not comfortable asking for help. Right. You know, I'm not comfortable. Well, it wasn't that I thought people were having technical problems and we needed to improve our user interface. But it was... It's a social barrier. Yeah. Social barrier to say, you know, what? I don't know. I, you know, either I need help or for some men, it was a lot. There's a lot of uh, homeowner and automobile type stuff that goes on. You know, I need a roofer or whatever. What's the best way to deal with uh, skunks? You know, right. Digging up up my garden. Oh, right. It's embarrassing. Uh, Joe doesn't know how to get his generator started. (laughs) Right, right, right. You know, (laughs) Snow on the roof, you know, a real man knows how to get snow off the roof. <laughs> and so they get the wife to post or, or whatever, but they, they, people see through that. And so, <laughs> you know, it's very interesting. And, and so modeling is the best way. When we find somebody who's that, that's why our, our, our little ranking algorithm, absolutely the, the best, most valuable postings are those where people show a little vulnerability and ask for advice, ask for help. We love those. Well, I love what you're doing, and and hopefully, uh, you know, hearing about this is, uh, you know, serves as our witnessing of what can happen in a, a community of 250,000 people who get turned on to the uh, the possibilities of mutual aid. I, I certainly hope our uh, uh, our friends at, at at Green Rabbit, our front porch members, if they're not, they're listening now. Maybe they'll check it out, frontporch.com, and any other of our uh, our Vermont listeners should be able to. Uh, uh, hook right, hook into that uh, immediately. Absolutely. And gosh, I mean, well, just thanks, thanks for what you're doing, helping uh, you know rehumanize, uh, rehumanize the real world. And uh, I, I love to have examples of why digital technology is not the enemy. It's it really can be the friend uh, of uh, you know local real world uh, community fabric. You know, if we use it. Consciously and self-consciously in that way, rather than surrendering to its, you know, its otherwise, you know, seemingly uh, atomizing biases, which are usually much more the uh, the biases of a particular set of developers or uh, or backers than it is the technology itself. You know, digital tools are wonderful. They're powerful. Our AI overlords are probably a few years off from you know settling all our problems. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, our great hope is that Front Porch Forum actually helps nurture 
real world networks of neighbors. So, you know, when the lights shut off because of the next wildfire or, or what have you, there will be strong networks of neighbors who know each other and can, you know, pitch in and help each other, uh, even without the help of their smartphones. Yeah, well, you know, strong community bonds you know, not only uh, provide us resiliency in, in times of disaster, but hopefully they also uh, uh, lower the probability of those disasters occurring in the first place. Yeah, amen to that. You know, so it's almost as if the the one strategy for apocalypse is should be the same as one strategy for avoiding apocalypse, and that's you know learn to know your neighbors and and you know learn to love them. That's it, or at least be in conversation. Yeah, <laughs> at least talk. Start that. Start with that. Well, thanks so much for talking with us. I know we're not from your community, but it's it's important for for those of us outside Vermont to get some of uh to get some of your lessons and then apply them uh, in the particularly local ways that that make sense for us. You're you're welcome, um, Doug. I really appreciate having this conversation with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Team Human. Our guests today were Philip McKenzie of the Two Dope Boys podcast and Michael Wood-Lewis from Front Porch Forum. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can support the show by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes, We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.